ask me why the Middle East matters, it matters because ISIS is like the lighthouse that is shining out a beacon across the world to one-fourth of our planet. That's Farah Pandith, the first ever special representative to Muslim communities, appointed in 2009 by then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Pandith also worked for the National Security Council at the White House. In today's episode, she joins other experts in a discussion about radical extremism. How do we confront radicalism in the Middle East? What does this nightmare mean for the United States? And what about the refugee crisis? This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. In March, Pandith was on stage in San Francisco with David Ignatius and Nick Burns. Ignatius is a former war reporter turned columnist for the Washington Post who writes about intelligence and national security. Burns has nearly three decades of service with the U.S. government. Now he directs the Aspen Strategy Group, a program of the Aspen Institute that focuses on problem-solving and dialogue around security and foreign policy challenges. This discussion is part of a set of lectures called the Morris Series, Leadership and Innovation. This talk focuses on the roots and the appeal of extremism in the Arab world. The conversation stems from a series of essays in the book Blindspot. The three speakers each contributed. The book is about extremism, the future of ISIS, and strategies to counter the Islamic State and other radical groups in the Middle East. Here are Farah Pandith, David Ignatius, and Nick Burns. Nick Burns begins. We are now five years and three months past the beginning of what journalism, journalists call the Arab Spring, really the Arab up- upheaval, the Arab revolutions that shook the 22 states of the Arab world beginning in January and February and March of 2011. What's the report card five years later? I would say of the 22 Arab states, maybe two, Tunisia, Morocco, and North Africa, maybe, are better off. Everybody else, the Keystone State, Egypt, worse off. The four states that have ceased really to be being nation states because they don't control their borders, there's no central authority, and they're all in civil war, Libya and North Africa, Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula, Iraq divided into three parts, Syria, State authority has imploded. The most vicious civil war of our time is being fought there. Of the 22.4 million Syrians at the beginning of the war, five years and two months ago, at least 12 million of them are now homeless. Seven million homeless inside the country, dodging the Islamic State, Jabhat al-Nusra, and the vicious Syrian government. Five million outside the country, in refugee camps in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Turkey, in Iraq, and about a million of them or outside the country, in this incredible human exodus that we've seen across the Aegean Sea, up the spine of Europe, the Balkans, trying to get to what they see in their desperation is a place of security and calm and lawfulness, Germany, the Netherlands, Finland, Sweden. One of the most dramatic and, and bitter and sad stories of our time. So we're going to talk about that region tonight and think about a region that has been blown apart by war, by revolution, by radicalism, a Shia-Sunni overlay, where Shia and Sunni are competing for power, and the great Shia state Iran, competing against the guardian of the two holy mosques, the Saudis in Yemen, as well as in Lebanon, as well as in Iraq and Syria. 
Think about the Islamic State that at one point held about a third of Syria and a third of uh, Iraq, that of course ordered, uh, we think, the attacks on Brussels, that has now metastasized and set up a satellite operation on 180 kilometers of Libyan coastline. Think of the awesome, terrible, brutal fact of revolution and tyranny in the Middle East. That's what we're going to discuss tonight. So David, I'll start with you. Donald Trump appears to say we should be withdrawing into the lower 48 and digging a moat around the country and pulling up the drawbridges. Even President Obama, in his in the very insightful article that Jeff Goldberg wrote about him in the Atlantic Magazine, seems to say we're no longer the key stakeholder, the key central power in the Middle East. What's at stake for the United States? How do you see this revolutionary turmoil? And welcome. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, first, it's great to be here um, in, through my life uh, whenever I've wanted to drop out of college or, you know, go live the good life. I've come directly to San Francisco, so I love being here. So what uh, does this uh, nightmare matter to America? Last summer, when we met in Aspen, and I should say, this is really, a, I go to a lot of foreign policy gatherings, but this group that Nick described is really unusual. It has former secretaries of state, former national security advisors. The people I most want to listen to, uh, a few dozen of them gathered around a table in this wonderful informal setting. We bring experts in. I was asked to write a paper, uh, which is in the book that Nick showed you about how ISIS spread, which is a great chance for me to think through all these years that I've been covering the Middle East. How did this happen? But last summer, when this question was put to us, why does this matter, we were pretty divided. A lot of the advice that we were getting from the experts we brought in was, leave these folks alone. They're really focused on building their caliphate. They're not striking uh, at America. That doesn't seem to us to be their intention. Uh, the best experts we could find, that was pretty much the consensus. So we, thinking about it, um, uh, had a lively and somewhat divided discussion about how much we should throw into this fight. Today, nine months later, it's much easier to answer the question. We have watched, after the attacks in Paris in November and in Brussels a week ago, this uh, menace come to the heart of Europe. And we've watched how destabilizing it is for countries that are among our closest allies. We've also watched them, in my judgment, completely unprepared without American help to deal with this problem. So to me, the, the first answer is the idea of living in a world where Europe, a place I've lived, where I've spent big chunks of my life radically destabilized by terrorists who are seeking to kill as many people as they can in the major cities of Europe is not acceptable. A world in which the United States would watch that happen and not see as central to its role in the world helping organize resistance, um, it's not a country I want to live in. You're listening to a discussion featuring David Ignatius, Farah Pandith, and Nick Burns about radical extremism. 
You can find more on the topic at our website, aspeninstitute.org. David Ignatius continues his thoughts on the Islamic State, why young people are joining, and how to fight it. The second thing that's clear today, and I think it was clear back then too, is the cost of letting this uh, metastasizing uh, organization uh, grow for the people in the Middle East and for Muslims in Europe. It's clear now that this is one problem. Uh, Unhappy, disaffected, um, not assimilated Muslims in, in Belgium and France and uh, all, really all the, in Britain, all the countries of Europe, have joined common cause with angry Muslims in North Africa and the Middle East. And the cost to their societies, I mean, this is a lost generation. I, I'm sure like far like, like Nick probably, I've been in these refugee camps. I snuck into Syria with the help of smugglers and traveled with these uh, people and saw the, saw the destruction of Aleppo with my own eyes. I mean, we're, we're watching a nightmare, the kind that we, we're used to from the flickering newsreel footage of, of World War II, but it's happening in our, in our world. So um, I think those things are, are clear to us now. What, how to fight it, uh, I'm going to turn this over to Farah, hope to come back to that, is a complicated question. When bad things happen, you have to be careful that you don't re- respond in a sort of spasmodic way. Uh, one of the things that I admire most about Franklin Roosevelt is that after Pearl Harbor, when people were screaming at him to do something in the Pacific, General MacArthur was pleading, send a fleet, save me, save me. He had the wisdom to wait until he was ready and then move decisively. So uh, we'll talk a little bit tonight about, about what those moves might be, but Nick, the simple answer is um, we know now in a way we didn't last August that this, I think, is central to our destiny as people, as a country. Thank you. Farah, how do you know you've traveled in all these countries of the Middle East. You've also served in the Bush and Obama administrations as this rolling series of revolutions has just cascaded through the region. How do you see it? Why is this important for us? So thank you very much. I also want to thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today about something that I think is one of the most vital things that we can be discussing. Uh, We are at a crossroads. Um, When you talk about um, what I saw, I'll get to that in a moment, you asked, David, why this matters to us. And we can have a conversation about the physical war and all the impact the impact of the physical borders in the Middle East and the impact of how this uh, the destabilization of leaders in the Middle East that we now don't know. There's a whole new uh, crop of leaders that we have not tested. We don't know what they're going to be like. But I want to talk to you about the physical, re- the, the, sorry, the psychological reasons and not the physical reasons on why we ought to be thinking about the Middle East. Something is happening psychologically and emotionally around the world that emanates from the Middle East and brand ISIS and their victory and their ability to recruit is important for our bottom line here in the United States. We're, we're in the wake of Brussels, as we were in the wake of Charlie Hebdo. And, of course, everybody in our country talks about our national security and how safe we are. And I know we're going to talk about recruitment. But when you ask me why the Middle East matters, it matters because ISIS is like the lighthouse that is shining out a beacon across the world 
to one-fourth of our planet. 1.6 billion Muslims in the world exist, 62% of which, as you know, are under the age of 30. That is the demographic from which ISIS recruits. When ISIS's momentum continues to build, and when they are seen as a colossal entity, they have the ability to persuade and move us forward. So it should matter to us because of what's happening psychologically, but it also needs to matter to us because of who we are as Americans. And, and I want to just dig one step deep. We cannot have any legitimacy in talking about what we ought to be doing on a whole host of other things that are connected vis-a-vis -vis foreign policy if we haven't led in the Middle East, if we are not showing the rest of the world that we care about what's happening to the populations that you described in your introduction, when we don't actually take a leadership role in the impact. ISIS is not the last stop, my friends. It is the tip of the iceberg. And today, we are worried about the, uh, the implications of what ISIS might mean um, in, in terms of what they're, what they're fighting for, the caliphate and all these other things. But in fact, the ideology of ISIS was built off the ideology of other groups that came before it. We would not have an ISIS if we didn't have an al-Qaeda. So when I think about the importance of the Middle East, I think about those two aspects, and then I think about a third. You talked about the Sunni Shia component overlaying everything. You know that the custodians of the holy sites are the Saudis. And we also understand with change that's happened in the Middle East today, the proxy war that's happening between Iran and Saudi Arabia is important for our bottom line, not, not for any other thing. I mean, there is a commercial component, there are security components. But from my perspective in terms of ideology, if we do not get a handle on what is happening on the Sunni Shia thing, we're going to see the aftermath of that in other places in the world that we aren't yet uh, knowledgeable enough, enough to have set up a system to be able to prevent threats from coming forward. What do I mean by that? Things are happening in Pakistan right now. Things are happening in the subcontinent. Things are happening in, South, uh, sorry, in Central Asia that are the ripple effects of the Sunni Shia thing that are dimensions that we didn't see before. So... The Middle East may be a region of the world, but it is a global, it has a global impact. Our leadership in the Middle East sends a signal throughout the world in terms of how we think about that region, but more importantly, the threats that are coming uh, to bear. Thank you, Farah. So, so I think both David and Farah have established that the Middle East matters to the United States for a million different reasons. Don't listen to people who say, just because we're not buying a lot of oil from the Middle East any longer, it no longer matters. This crisis is now, as David said, is now fundamentally undermining the European Union and might destroy the European Union project. I never thought we'd get there. This crisis is afflicting all of our friends, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, Turkey, the Saudis, and they're our friends and have been our friends, so it matters. That's Nick Burns discussing extremism in the Arab world with Farah Pandith and David Ignatius of The Washington Post. While groups like ISIS wreak havoc on parts of the world, Burns asks Ignatius about the effectiveness of the Obama administration. The United States, I think most people would say, became the strongest outside power in the Middle East, probably in the wake of the October War in 1973 between Israel, Syria, and Egypt. Henry Kissinger negotiated the two disengagement treaties. Since then, we have been the strongest outside force. We've had the greatest coalition in the region. President Obama, and I'm a great admirer of President Obama and supporter, but he's pretty much pulled us out of part of the crisis, and he's, 
If you've read the Jeff Goldberg uh, interview article in Atlantic Magazine, if you haven't, you have to read it about the Obama doctrine. Uh, he had quotes the president as basically saying, this is, these can't be our fights. We can't be the central organizer of all these conflicts. Uh, right? Wrong? Is there an Obama strategy? Is it working or is it not? Well, I, I think um, this is going to be a, a great uh, historical drama that people, I want to say tragedy, that people will examine as they look at, at President Obama. President Obama came into office determined not to make the same mistake that George W. Bush had made in Iraq. Uh, he was the rare person in public life who strenuously opposed the war back when he was a state politician in Illinois in 2002. Uh, and uh, he, I can remember conversations with him when he first became president. He, he did not want to go down that road again. And he, he was sure that the lesson was don't knock over the pillars of stability in a country unless you know with some clarity what what's going to fill the vacuum. And so through this story, he has been seeking to extricate the United States from Iraq to avoid involvement in Syria, to reduce our exposure to the Middle East. It wasn't an accident. It was a deliberate policy, strategy. And it was understandable. I mean, anybody who says now, how could he, you know, it's shocking, morally indefensible, doesn't understand, I think, what the country was feeling in 2008 and again in 2012 when he, when he ran against a pretty hawkish Mitt Romney and the country wasn't there. So, you know, we, we understand that feeling that we've been throwing our money and our young men and women's lives after a cause that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. People aren't grateful. We're getting nothing out of it. And that's, and that's where, where, where President Obama was. To me, the reason it's a tragedy is that just as Iraq taught all of us the dangers of military intervention, Syria and, and Iraq, this combined story of ISIS, has taught us the dangers of non-intervention. Left to itself, with the United States absent as a decisive player, this situation got worse and worse. Uh, again, I saw it with my own eyes up close in 2012, came back and was very passionate you know, with the president, with people in our government. Barack Obama was allergic to Syria. He just didn't want to catch this. And it caught him. Uh, and he has now been moving toward a more and more involvement. I think he truly wants to hand it off to his successor. Uh, again, I'll, I'll save until later the details of what he's doing to try to stop this. But just, just one simple comment. The president was slow to see this coming. He said as much. Jim Clapper said, director of national intelligence, said we underestimated this adversary. But the president did finally say in September 2014, it is the purpose of the United States to degrade and ultimately destroy this adversary. The Islamic State. The Islamic State. A strong commitment from, from the president. It was after the fall of Mosul in Iraq. A year later, Ramadi fell. The 
the capital of Anbar province in the west of Iraq. And I think it's fair to say very few lessons had been learned. Today, in 2014, the Islamic State is essentially operating in Syria and Iraq. Today, it is operating, either has affiliates or supporters in 21 countries. 38,000 people have gone to fight in Syria. That dwarfs the number that went to Afghanistan to fight with al-Qaeda. Of those 38,000, 5,000 have come from Europe. They are, have been heading back in networks that we now see were organized to create mayhem. The New York Times wrote this morning they've been, they've been heading back for two years, and we just didn't see that either. Knowing what the right thing to have done is very difficult. I grant that. But you cannot look at where we are now and argue that this is a course of action that you're proud of, which President Obama basically said in the Atlantic articles. Uh, that can't be. This is a discussion in San Francisco about the problem of radical extremism and how to combat it. Moderator Nick Burns asks David Ignatius of the Washington Post about what the next president should be thinking about. What would you do um, if Hillary Clinton is sworn in on January 20th, 2017? I just frankly shudder at Donald Trump. I shudder at the thought of him being sworn in as president. Let's say it's Hillary Clinton for argument's sake. And she called you and said, David, you, you've been watching this region for 35 years. What are the two or three things that we Americans can begin to do to piece together a strategy that could be successful? Because even President Obama's most fervent admirers would say he has not succeeded. First thing that I would tell um, President-elect Clinton to do is call Nick Burns. <laughs> now, I, it was, that was not what I, where I wanted you to go with this. He, this audience, <laughs> I, I to hope no. I mean, Secretary Clinton has has a handful of key foreign policy advisors. <laughs> that this is one of them is sitting to my to my left. So that's the first thing. That, All right. So the second thing, yeah. um, and for I just have been reading a couple of histories of World War II, so I'm kind of overburdening. Uh, people with historical analogies. But um, after the shock of Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Franklin Roosevelt invited Winston Churchill. Actually, Churchill kind of invited himself to the White House. To the White House. Yeah. In, you know, upsetting Eleanor, who had to put up with him. But <laughs> they then bonded the level of president to prime minister, but more important, beneath them, you know, American military services which were perpetually feuding, usual turf wars and baloney, forgive me saying this in the Presidio, but, you know, and enough, that's going to stop. The uh, turf wars, uh, uh, uneasiness between the U.S. and British militaries ended, and there was an alliance in which everything was shared. All intelligence. The, the uh, British gave us their greatest secret, that they cracked the German codes. We gave the British our greatest secret. We had ch- cracked the Japanese naval codes. 
we subordinated command to them, but mostly they subordinated command to us. And there was, you know, Winston Churchill went away from that meeting. It was called the Arcadia Conference, because they met in a, the Arcadia uh, Conference Hall. Winston Churchill went away from it saying, I don't know how long this will take, but I know that we'll win. The minute that this is done with the United States and its allies in Europe and the Middle East, you can say, the minute it really happens, and they go to a summit and they don't leave until they've actually knocked heads and done it, you can all say, I don't know how long this will take, but I know that we'll win. But that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, there are a lot of obstacles. You know, presidents meet in summits all the time. But fusing command does, I mean, you know, Belgium can't do it with its, its own security services. But, but that's, that's, second thing that's got to happen is that, that ISIS has to be obliterated in Iraq and Syria. But you have to be really careful not to do that too quickly. We do not yet have a force of Sunni surrogates who can take the Sunni towns of Raqqa and Mosul. And if we send in the non-Sunni surrogates, the Kurds in in Syria and pretty much the Kurds and the Shiite-led army in Iraq, we could make things, I mean, as bad as they are, we could make them even worse. So so, so a a caution to to President-elect Clinton, you know, uh, you got to do this, but but you need to make sure that you have the forces that will do it right. David referred to the New York Times article um, by Rukmini Kalamaki, who's this great young reporter, I think, doing the best reporting great. on the Islamic State. Uh, it's a great article to read. What are you reading on World War II? That provides some takeaways for So I will, I will, um, I read a, a, a book which is wonderful, uh, contrarian, iconoclastic uh, history called The Mantle of Command, which is about Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. And the argument of this book is, it was really FDR who was the military leader, not George Marshall, certainly not Winston Churchill, not all the people that we've been taught to think were decisive. It was actually Franklin Roosevelt, uh, and it's, it's worth reading. And then I just am reading the first volume of a spectacular, and for those who like to read narrative history, spectacular history of the war in the Pacific by Ian Toll, who's published by my publisher, Norton. This is called The Pacific Crucible. It's the first of three volumes. And it's, the, I'll end here, but the portrait of Admiral Yamamoto, the Japanese admiral who knew that World War II would be a disaster for Japan, yet also was the architect of Pearl Harbor, is stunning. Just to read, he's just, this guy, the author speaks and writes Japanese. It's an incredible uh, portrait of this man. So, thank you. you know, it's so on your Amazon. Go to your neighborhood bookstore, but if you can't. Uh, so, so what David's been describing is how does the United States government react? Uh, 22 Arab countries, Israel, Iran, Turkey, the countries of the Middle East. What are the four or five things you do? We can get back to that because we're going to have you ask questions of our two panelists. FAR has got a more difficult job. How do we Americans play some limited, narrow, minor role, probably, in trying to influence 1.6 billion Muslims, one-seventh of humanity, not to take up arms against civilization, against order, not to kill people in airports. How do, what would you say to any of our presidential candidates who asked you, and I'm sure all of them are, how do you get your arms around that, that question? 
So I would say a couple of things. And, and the first is, um, David, I want to piggyback a little bit on, on what you said um, in terms of being visionary, right? This idea of being a leader, of what it means to actually have wisdom. We don't have 100 years of um, to look back on and say, what, what did various people do with this kind of threat? We just don't. We're, we're doing this in, 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 a, in a new way with new tools. We're talking about digital natives. The one billion Muslims under the age of 30 from which ISIS recruits are digital natives. They grew up with a switch of their finger. They're connecting ideas around the world. We have no map that tells us what that means. We have no history books that are written about the admirals and the generals that have told us how to do this. There are no presidents who've ever had to deal with this kind of threat, with the technology and with the nuance. So we have to, we have to forge ahead. And I don't think America needs to take a small, minor role. America's role in the ideological fight is front and center. And it is front and center because we have been looking at this since our country was attacked on 9-11. We have understood, we understand more now on how a young person gets recruited and what that ideological journey is for them than we have, we have more knowledge now than we have ever had in 15 years. There's more research done, there's more data done, and yet our military commanders, as well as our non-military commanders, don't know what to do with it. So we are stuck in a situation where while we have information, no one has wanted to lead and no one has put the resources into what to do. So when she gets sworn in as the next president, <laughs> what I would say to our new president is this. We know that the most credible uh, communities that can push back against violent ideologies that are stemming from groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, Boko, Taliban, do not come from nation states. They come from the grassroots, and they come from Muslims themselves. So the first thing we absolutely must do is look very carefully at the things that have worked for the last 15 years in a very microscopic way, and to build the kind of alliance that we must build in the soft power space. We talk about the coalition of the willing. We talk about the nation states that are ready to go in and fight ISIS with drones and boots on the ground and whatever else. Where is the coalition? that is willing to put money where their mouth is, stopping the recruitment process from happening. Kids between the age seven and 30 are getting recruited. They're getting recruited every day here in San Francisco and around the world. And it is not about a region. It is not about the 450 that came from Belgium. And do not, as you're reading the aftermath of the Belgian attacks, buy into this idea that this is about the border states of just Belgium or France or there. These are millennials. These are digital natives. The ideas that happen in Morocco affect Malaysia. This is how, this is the threat that we are facing. So when I think about how we build the kind of coalition, it's putting the kind of architecture together that David was talking about that we did at, at the time when we had an, a common enemy. We do have a common enemy. There are nation states that may not believe in um, who's going to be the next leader or whether you know, uh, they want to go in one direction or another. But we do have nation states around the world that want to eradicate the appeal of this ideology, the ideology of an us and a them that's manifested in these kinds of extremist groups. Right. So what do we do? We put somebody in charge. We figure out where the prototypes... Some person in the U.S. government. Well, we, we, we would find a coalition of countries that would be responsible 
for mapping out all of the micro solutions that we know are happening at the grassroots with Muslims around the world. And there are. If you don't believe they are, believe me, there are. What you're missing is that they haven't been scaled up proportionally to the fight that we need to fight. This isn't about just 40,000 tweets per month that ISIS puts out, nor is it just about the 50 people that ISIS has in their communication center, only 50, that are doing the damage that they're doing. This is about building the kind of professional apparatus that is a 24-7 machine that is pushing back on and offline to the ideologies of an us and a them. So that's the first thing I would ask her to do. Build that coalition, understand that there are micro-solutions, scale them up proportionally, and then here's the other part. Where the heck is the money? There are pennies on the dollar being spent in the soft power space. You cannot expect uh, us to be able to leverage the ideas that we know will work with you know, uh, shoestring budgets. Nor can we expect to be able to pull the kinds of professionals from the kind of tech companies that are down the road here or around the world and say, work on this 24-7 if you're not paying them to do so. So who do we have pay who's doing this? We have a bunch of government people who are doing it, who are doing the best job they can with the limitation that they have. But the really smart people, the savvy ones, the ones that have a lot of credible different kinds of initiatives that can get into the space of a young Muslim millennial's mind, need to be paid to be able to look at this in a really crafty way. So it's, uh, it's very crass to say we need more money, and, and that's going to answer it. But I'm absolutely convinced that we have the architecture that can go forward if just done at scale. Um, I, I just want to say one other thing. Um, when we look at the way we have uh, sort of made a hierarchy of who's important in the Middle East, okay, that hierarchy was made on a Cold War frame. It was a very different world that we're living in. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Correct. et cetera. Right. I am not saying that they're not important, but on the soft power ideological game and the war that we're playing that is far bigger than the Middle East, we need to be able to think a little bit differently. And I go back to where I started about vision and about leadership. The new president needs to look at the entire world and figure out who can help us lead in a way that isn't just the guy with the longest beard and the highest hat? It doesn't work like that. For these millennials, they're looking for different kinds of voices that government doesn't feel comfortable with because they're arts and culture, they're rappers, they're graffiti artists. But those are the very credible voices that are able to convince a young person that isn't cool, you don't want to go down that path um, and I'm sorry, I just remembered one other thing I just want to tell you, because we're both on the commission. Exactly. Um, so we're building, Nick and I are both um, very fortunate to be on a commission uh, that is really building a report card for the next president in terms of what we really need to do. And one element in that is really being led by, being uh, led by Tony Blair and Leon Panetta right. uh, and is being housed at CSIS. And we're in the middle of the, well, actually the beginning process of writing this report. One element that has completely been off the radar screens of every government, because this is gushy stuff, ideological stuff is gush, government doesn't do gush very well, um, <laughs> is the social-psychological social, social aspect. So what's happening to an adolescent brain? We have not brought in the mental health experts to help us understand that journey that young people take to become radicalized. We did this with gangs. We did this with other things. We haven't done it here. So one of the recommendations that I would absolutely make to the new president is please look at the black holes. Where are the places that we have not touched 
that we need to go deep and really be able to draw them in in their expertise. And this all sounds very soft, and it sounds very uncomfortable for most governments to do, but I'm convinced that the new president will have the capacity to be able to do this because she has already done it before in a very small way. Thank you very much. Now, at this point in the proceedings, I must say that the Aspen Institute is a nonprofit institution. <laughs> it, fa it takes no institutional view of our uh, presidential campaign. These are only the personal views of the people up here. You're tuned into a discussion about radical extremism in the Middle East with Nick Burns, Farah Pandith, and David Ignatius. Burns asked Pandith, who's with the Council on Foreign Relations, about the possibility of a terrorist attack in the United States. There's been a conventional wisdom in the American press coverage of the Paris and Brussels attacks is that it can't and probably won't that kind of thing happen here from our Muslim community because the American Muslim community is integrated. True, hubris, wishful thinking, you know that you're part of that community, you know that community. How, how would you respond to that? Wishful thinking. Because I was in the Bush White House, as you know, um, right after the Danish cartoon crisis. My first job, outward-looking, not inward-looking, was to be the person who was on the ground in Europe developing our <laughs> ideological fight uh, in Europe. I went to 55 cities and 19 countries in two years across Europe in the two years after the Danish cartoon crisis. And we were very arrogant in America, thinking this could never happen here. We have a I'm only saying wishful thinking because of all the stuff I said about digital natives and how they're absorbing information. But also, the fact is that with all the people that are coming back from, from the foreign fighters that are returning, th there's a physical dimension to what happens to them when they come back. But there's also this aspect of the psychological, uh, the San Bernardinos that happened, is, are going to impact younger and younger American kids who happen to be Muslim, who, and by the way, you didn't ask this, but I will say, the echo chamber in the United States of the shrill voices and the fear-mongering around Muslims is adding to this drumbeat of, you are the other. And that isn't the only thing that's going to move somebody to become a radical. I'm not saying that. But it's a lot of different forces that are together. So when I look at the next 10 years of our, of, of our own country, Comey has already, the, the, the director of the FBI has already said there are active investigations in all 50 states. And I'm not you know, telling you to leave here going, oh, my God, beware of Muslims. That is not what I'm saying. But understand that Muslims in our country are not immune for the reasons I've just described. Thank you. David, speaking of San Bernardino, um, the Justice Department says it now broke into the phone without the help of Apple, of the San Bernardino couple. They haven't divulged and probably should not divulge what they found. Um, where did you come down on that? For national security reasons, should Apple have cooperated? For privacy and technology and company reasons, should Apple have ha had said no? Well, I, I have a uh, very... Unconventional, certainly in uh, in this zip code, uh, view of this, um, but uh, I think that Tim Cook made a terrible mistake. Um, he's been lionized. He's been a hero to the tech community. But um, I think I wrote this a month and a half ago. So I, I think he put his company and his customers ahead of a court order. And I just don't think that that's appropriate. Um, the outcome of this, in which he, you know, intentionally or not, basically dared the FBI to hack the, 
iPhone technology and get the information that the FBI initially had asked for quietly, the notion that that, which is what's happened, the notion that that's in the interests of Apple and its customers as opposed to what the government was proposing, I don't get that at all. So, I mean, I know Tim Cook's a big hero. I'm very sorry to say, the, you know, the unpopular view, but that's what I think. Okay. Um, I'll just say one other thing in response to, to what Farr said. That'll be very brief. Um, we may have big problems here in America coming, but we have a secret weapon. And it's people like her. I'm, I'm not just flattering her, but Muslim Americans, after 9-11, stood up and said, we are ashamed of what's been done in our names, and we want to serve our country. I mean, I know, I want to say, hundreds of people who volunteered for our intelligence agencies, our military, State Department, as far as I did, our police forces. And... I don't see that happening in Europe. European Muslims, and I know European governments should do better and should reach out and you know, be more welcoming, and they, they have to have to do that. But European Muslims have to stand up and say, I'm a citizen of this country. I'm a resident of this country. I have responsibilities. And I, I hope you know, that's a message. You have unique credibility, but I hope you'll say to people, you have to, you have to own this. This is your country, too. You have to own it. Uh, and take responsibility. Because if people don't, there's something really awful, a chain of awful things going to keep happening. Right? So I profoundly agree. Uh, my wife Libby was here. We lived in Belgium and in Greece. And we saw that in contrast to our admittedly imperfect, but still great melting pot society, where Barack Obama can become president from very humble uh, beginnings in Hawaii. In Europe, more mosaic societies, where the Muslim communities are, in essence, walled off. They wall themselves off or they are walled off. And it's very difficult for a young Muslim kid in, in one of these ghettos, in the Paris suburbs or in the center of Brussels, to think, I can become prime minister of Belgium or CEO of a company or president of a university. That doesn't excuse the violence in any way, shape, or form, but it explains that we are a different environment here. We have a strength here. But I, I listen to Farah. We can't rest on our laurels. So um, I want to end a hopeful note. In an impossible situation, we uh, have produced in government and in journalism smart, reflective, visionary people who are making a difference. Thank you, David. Thank you, Farah. That was Farah Pandith, Nick Burns, and David Ignatius speaking about extremism in the Arab world. The talk was part of the Morris Lecture Series held in San Francisco. You can find more about the book Blind Spot that precipitated the conversation on our website, aspeninstitute.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas to Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, rate the show. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Discover more about the Aspen Institute at aspeninstitute.org. Follow the Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.